Santa's watching, Santa's creeping. Now you're nodding, now you're sleeping. Were you good for mom and dad? Santa knows if you've been bad. Welcome to Now Playing's Silent Night, Deadly Night retrospective series. This fella dressed as Santa. He said about killing them that was naughty. Hosted by Stuart. What the hell's wrong with that kid? Arnie. I don't sleep. And Marjorie. Well, I stop seeing these creepy things. I hate it. Each week, we will be unwrapping and reviewing another film in the Silent Night, Deadly Night series. Leading up to a review of the remake, coming out in December. Christmas. The number one holiday for people going nuts. But be warned. Opening this gift will give you detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Merry fucking Christmas. Santa's creeping, now you're nodding, now you're sleeping. Were you good for mom and dad? Santa knows if you've been bad. Today we're discussing Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. Better watch out! Or what? You'll bore me to death? (laughs) (laughs) Starring Bill Mosley, someone I've heard of. (laughs) Richard Beamer, Samantha Scully, Eric DeRay, Laura Herring, and Robert Culp. (laughs) (laughs) And directed by someone I don't know, Monty Hellman. Who I do. I'm Arnie, but am I live or am I Memorex? Stuart! In L.A. And I'm Marjorie, and I am not blind. (laughs) (laughs) Too bad. You would have enjoyed this more. Possibly. I don't know. I imagine hearing it only would have been worse than seeing and hearing it. (laughs) It would have just been like one of those 90s mood music movies, you know, like the new age kind of (laughs) that sound like a pencil sharpener that happened every now and then. I'm not sure what this soundtrack was. It was like Kataro meets Twin Peaks. This is the kind of cast you expect to see at Celebrity Jail at Comic-Con, doing different things. And somehow they all wound up here in a movie. Like casting happened at Autograph Alley? It might have just been, yeah, standing around shooting the shit and being like, hey, well, why don't we shoot a movie? Well... As I've said on the previous two podcasts in this series, I know nothing about these movies going in. Seeing Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, better watch out. I had no idea if it was going to be connected with the previous ones, if it was going to be Billy, if it was going to be Ricky. But I did quickly find out Ricky does return, but sadly, it's not Eric the Eyebrow Friedman. Biggest mistake of the whole production. Why couldn't they get that guy back? I think he was doing one-offs of Full House or something. I mean, he never had another role as prominent as this. There was never anything else going better in Eric Freeman's life. I mean, he should have milked this train, and they would have been lucky to keep going with the humor that they had with this last one. But, you know, Bill Mosley is no weak link. I mean, he made this in between Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and that Night of the Living Dead movie we just saw. And, of course, he's appeared in a lot of other horror. He's a veteran. Dare I say he might even be a horror icon at this point. I would agree with horror icon. I think House of a Thousand Corpses cemented it. But you gotta think in 1989, he probably looked like a trade-up. You're getting Chop Top from Texas Chainsaw 2, and now, instead of just taking the scalp off his head, you're taking the whole skull off his head. At this point, he was being typecast as a guy with no skull. (laughs) Yeah, but you put that glass dome on him, he can't raise his eyebrows. I mean, it screws with the whole character here. You had someone last time that looked like someone from a spring break 80s comedy, and now Bill Mosley looks road hard, put away wet. It's just a different take on the character, I suppose. But also keep in mind, this came out in 1989, when the direct-to-video sequel market really started to take off. The 90s was certainly the heyday, but the late 80s is when they started looking and going, what can we make really on the cheap? And put out for gorehounds to just eat up. What can we make a profit on just shitting it out onto VHS? And yeah, getting Bill Mosley probably was right along the lines. He was probably already hanging out at the Fangoria offices when they were soliciting for screenwriters. It should be said, direct-to-video the market was probably less than a year old when they gave this movie the green light. This is one of the first movies to be put direct in the pipeline. They knew they weren't going to go to the theaters with this. I'm not even sure the second one went to any theaters but this one they knew they were targeting people that were going to rent it 
another big coup, I've got to say, this director, Monty Hellman, is a git. I've never heard of him, so what has he done? I haven't really been that familiar with his work, but he's a veteran. He's worked for decades, and he worked for Corman. He made a horror movie with Boris Karloff and Jack Nicholson for Corman called The Terror. He made a counterculture movie in the 70s that's well-regarded that I could never sit through called Tulane Blacktop. He steps in during times when projects are in trouble. He did second unit on RoboCop. He's helped out other directors with getting coverage for a fistful of dollars. He works a lot. A director died and they gave him the Muhammad Ali movie, The Greatest, to finish. I thought you were going to say he did Ali. I'm like, why didn't you lead with that? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's Michael Mann. This guy is not anywhere in Michael Mann's shoes. But he is, I would say, a well-regarded craftsman who steps in for treble projects and every now and then has had a movie that has connected with critics and film buffs, if not exactly mass market audiences. He produced Reservoir Dogs. That's probably his greatest claim to fame. You know, this was the film that kind of killed his career. I mean, I guess that's not surprising, but he didn't make a movie for 20 years after this. And as basically said, he kind of stumbled into it, that he was asked to write it in a week, film it in a month, edit it in another month. And in three months, it was already screening at film festivals. It was being moved to home video market. He's proud of the fact that they were able to cobble something together in three months, which is an achievement. No matter what you say about the movie or the quality itself, it's hard to make any movie, even a bad movie in such a time span. Concept to hitting play on your VHS less than 90 days, that's pretty impressive. If you say so. <laughs> I'm not gonna... It's not like he just put out a fantastic movie. Did you watch the movie story? <laughs> well... I don't know that I'd be proud of this movie. Well, on the other hand, the best thing you can say about this movie is they're able to put it out in 90 days. <laughs> I think that is the best thing you can say about it. Absolutely. And having gone to film school, I got to say, it takes a lot of work even to make a terrible film. I can recognize that for economy's sake, he did do a bang up job. But no, it's not going to be a calling card you use to get more work. And like I said, he didn't work for 20 years. I just want to put it in perspective. In TV, you do all of that. 28 minutes edited a week was pretty standard in the 80s. So in four weeks, TV studios put out two hours of content. He had three times that to do two thirds that. So I can't give him that much credit. If the movie was sterling, absolutely. It would just be a testament. It would be a bullet wound that he would show off proudly of his tour of duty. As it is, it's kind of a lame excuse to what we're about to discuss. Yeah, I think it put him into a career coma as deeply as that bullet in part two put Ricky out of commission. Let's just get into it then. Arnie, you've entertained us before with some musical plots. Do you have something for us this week? I do. (laughs) It may be better or worse than the movie. I'm not really sure, (laughs) but at least it's shorter. I'm so excited. This is becoming my favorite part. Ricky the Killer had his brain kept in a jar. He was comatose and no one noticed his eyes moving rapider. Laura the Psychic had nightmares every night. Her eyes were blind but she didn't mind because she had second sight. Laura's doctor experimented, connecting their minds. Laura dropped out and her doc got pissed, but Ricky was no longer confined. Ricky the killer started to now stalk the girl. He was chased by a cop played by Robert Culp. Rick's plan started to unfurl. With their psychic bond, Rick went to Laura's granny's house. He killed the old bird, only said one word, only Laura came out of his mouth. He killed off Laura's brother and his real bitchy girlfriend. He even murdered his own doc, he has gone over the bend. In Granny's basement, Ricky did run out of luck. He fell on a stick, what a clumsy dick, I'm less saying what the fuck. He fell on a stick, what a clumsy dick, I'm less saying what the fuck. Bravo! I like that you went with Frosty this time, all around. Very impressive. I definitely think it's better than the movie. Yeah, that one was really good. So let's talk about that, shall we? Because that really is the plot of the movie. (laughs) 
Are we talking about Frosty or Silent Night 3? I'm confused. Somehow we are to believe that Ricky survived the last movie. Now, it is kind of teased at the end. He did smile, but he's not like Jason where he's just getting up and killing again. But he went into a coma and despite the fact that he wasn't shot in the head, from what I could tell in part two, it was all chest, abdomen, trunk shots. They removed his skull. <laughs> they had to reassemble his face, apparently. Half of his face is... I thought it was burn marks, but we later learned that it was an injury sustained from the bullets. That I don't know what went on, but they had to reassemble the brain on top of it. Apparently, they couldn't put hair back on. They just put a bowl in there to keep all of the gray matter contained. It's a comical-looking invention, and it tells you right away here that I don't think we're supposed to take this too seriously. Did you notice the red liquid swishing around every time his head moved? No, really? Oh my god, how could you not notice that? Well, if he ever looked in the mirror, he might kill himself. I mean, that red, he's still got that trademark. That's how I knew it was the same Ricky. It could have been anybody else just named Ricky, but he is still triggered by red. That's still what drives him, I guess. It was like a half-empty snow globe with red liquid in it. And there was a green flashing light yeah, at the back. he was like Lobot from Star Wars. He had like flashing lights all over in this red liquid. I just have to think it, the risk for infection is very high. <laughs> but you know what this tells me is I see a character with LEDs in a fishbowl and a brain head. I'm immediately thinking that somebody had high aspirations. This is a new Freddy. He's got his new deformation. He's got this trademark kills. He's the Christmas Freddy is kind of what I see here. I think that they're really trying to take it somewhere. And his brain is the equivalent of Freddy's burns. Yeah, well, and he's appearing in dreams. It should be said most of the time that we see him on here, it's visions. It's things that are happening in Laura's head. The movie starts, in fact, in this eerie white room where he lures her down a hall and tries to slasher with a scalpel and is he also the santa claus i believe he is santa that is what i took from that but it is hard to tell who's under that beard but it is santa who attacks her which is the only santa claus killer we get from this whole thing but i actually kind of liked this dream beginning the white room and everything it was actually taking me back to a couple months ago Stuart, with some of the romero stuff the way dawn of the dead started with red and day of the dead started with the white room i was thinking maybe we're in for somebody who knows their horror and is going to pay some homages. Well, I got one whiff off of this, and yes, you could definitely go with Elm Street. It was in vogue at the time that they put this together. I'm sure that was an inspiration, but I think Monty Hellman was channeling something else. David Lynch, Twin Peaks. I gotta say, right from the get-go, you start with this Laura and this eerie synth music going on, and we see this dead ringer for Shelley the Waitress lying there, and I'm thinking, this is giving me a whole lot of David Lynch coming out of here. And as we go through the movie, it's just going to keep surfacing again and again for me. Well, you do, of course, know Twin Peaks came a year later. Maybe David Lynch was inspired by this. I mean, there's two actors here who would go on to be Twin Peaks. I kept freaking out every time they would talk about Laura. You said this was screened at film festivals. I imagine David Lynch goes to film festivals. Maybe he went and had, like, major inspiration. Better watch out the TV series. Oh, the rights are taken. Twin Peaks. No, I did my research on this because I had to know. There was too many coincidences. There was too many Lynch ties. First of all, Twin Peaks, the pilot, was shot around the exact same time that this was shot. So it would have been happening simultaneously. Monty Hellman and David Lynch are friends. They both live here in L.A. and they know each other and they shared a lot of actors. Ed from Twin Peaks had just been in Monty Hellman's movie. Harry Deaton Stanton has appeared in both their movies. They use the same people. They're friends with the same people. This was an exchange, I think, I don't know who called who first. I don't know if David Lynch said, hey, I'm working on this TV pilot and you've got to use these guys or vice versa. But there is a strong Lynch connection. It's not coincidental. Being a big Twin Peaks fan, having recently rewatched them, I couldn't help but think Twin Peaks all the time. But wow, when you're thinking about something good while watching something bad, it makes that bad thing worse, doesn't it? <laughs> 
First Twin Peaks alum, Ben Horn, is the doctor awaiting when Laura comes out of her dream state. What is going on? Someone walk me through this. Okay, so a Santa Claus killer is put down. You scramble his brain in a jar and keep him alive as a vegetable. Your goal is to hook him up with psychics so that what? See, that's what I didn't get either because we know why Ricky and Billy killed. This was no big secret. No, it Watch the first one. If you want to know motives, they spend 40 minutes on that stuff. I mean, my God, you don't need a psychic to know why they went ballistic. That's well, well documented. I was wondering if this was some kind of V-date. Is this like some you know matchmaker service where even in a coma, we can get you a girl or something like that? What would be the purpose of hooking up chicks with comatose people? What could you learn? Well, let's take it back one step. Why are we introducing psychics into this series? This is like Jason fighting a telekinetic to me. We're only in part three and we're now bringing in psychics. That is my first problem. And the second problem is the entire plot is revolved around this psychic connection. I think that the fact that Ricky was a killer is incidental. He is that Dr. Newbury has a guinea pig and a psychic, and he's just trying to connect them because Ricky is somebody there in a coma and trying to make them connect. I don't think that Newbury had any devious plans of reviving Ricky. He was unfortunately not a Ricky cultist or a Ricky fan or something. I disagree. I disagree. Later on down the line, when he gets to talking with Robert Culp, he definitely expresses some idea that science can restore our innocence. I mean, there's some lip service paid to the idea that I think he thinks that he can reform Ricky, which I would think a good way to start would be to make him brain dead and scoop his cerebrum into a jar. I think that anything that he was before is not going to be retained after you sustain that kind of injury to your cranium. But I definitely feel like his Mad Doctor plot. It's not just to get these two to talking, it's to get her to cull his killer instinct. To what end? Why would he want that? Well, yes, exactly, because he's not exactly going around killing anyone. I mean, he's lying on a table. He's barely alive. It was a horrible plot. But then again, in most sci-fi and horror movies, the scientist usually is the instigator for horrible plots that bring about several people's deaths, including their own. You have a point. But usually they have a reason. Usually they're going for profit or for science. But here, I never quite could finger Newberry. I never... (laughs) What? Well, he does sort of describe his procedures in a very innuendo-heavy way. I want to penetrate his mind deeper. She likes it. There might be some lecherous quality. He might get off on the whole idea. It feels like matchmaker. It feels like a dating service here more than anything. It doesn't feel driven by anything so much as pervy curiosity. And my God, one nightmare would have been enough. He puts her down two more times in this opening so that we can replay old scenes from the previous movie. Yeah, that mother rape and her (laughs) breasts being torn open. I mean, they will just (laughs) never stop showing that to us, will they? This is a franchise that really is into regifting. I tell you what, they keep wrapping up those kills again and again. You open it up every year. It's like, ah, oh, again. Thanks. Okay. And while it does show that there is this psychic bond, this goes on way too fucking long. Now, we spend 20 minutes in the hospital just establishing that Laura is a psychic being experimented on by Newberry. Given that we spend so much time in the hospital, I really thought he was Freddy and that this was going to be a ripoff of Dream Warriors and the whole thing would take place in the hospital. That's why we were spending so much time on the bitchy nurse and the doctor and the assistant. I really thought this was the supporting cast that was going to be slaughtered throughout, so I was dumbfounded when she then leaves the hospital. And that we find out Laura is blind as well, which I could really see that adding a sense of horror to this whole thing. It doesn't, but it could have. I think they filmed this in real time. I mean, the way that she's sitting there waiting for her brother, I think, is the actual time it took for him to show up here. I mean, this movie (laughs) crawls. And that's kind of why I never finished Monty Hellman's Tulane Blacktop. It was a well-revered 70s race car movie. And you'd think that would mean high-speed octane, easy rider kind of stuff. But it just dragged and dragged. And after 20 minutes, I gave up on that. And I'll tell you what, if it weren't for this podcast, I definitely would have walked away from this as well. I'm right there with you. I don't 
don't know that I would have made it to the 30 minute mark because yeah, there's an entire scene where Laura is getting treated nasty by a nurse and I don't understand the point of this scene other than to perhaps justify later on that Ricky will kill her, but it just is way too long. It's these long lingering shots. It feels like you're really sitting in a hospital just watching this. <laughs> That's how long and boring it is. You're just like, all right, nurse is mean. Got it. Don't talk to her. But eventually your brother does show up. And again, another Twin Peaks moment. Leo! And he's nice! Like, I can't even buy this right away. I mean, he was never a good actor. Even on that show, at the height of my fandom for it, I knew he was one of the weaker acting links. But yeah, he's here like the doting, kind, older brother here. It's just throwing me for a headspin because he was suspect number one for Laura's death through most of that show. But what is with that receding Dave Mustaine hair? <laughs> yeah, they had it in a ponytail. David Lynch knew that you could not have the poodle do. Every scene he's in, it's about that hair. It would humble a headbanger. You're right. It's just, it's some really bad headbanger hair. I realize it's very 80s, but it's just so funny because it's quite obvious that he's going very, very bald. They didn't even put a wig on. I think that might be his real hair. It's just so thin. Yeah. Sometimes people hold on to their hair far longer than they should. He thought that this was better than going bald. I strongly disagree. I imagine he cringes in embarrassment should he ever go back to this. He has a weird relationship with his sister. I have three sisters. I would not be talking about how well my girlfriends give head or making sexual innuendo jokes with them. That did seem kind of weird and uncomfortable for everyone involved, including the audience. Yeah, she was just uh, strange about it, though. I mean, she seems to have it in for his girlfriend when we finally meet Jerry, the stewardess. I mean, right from the get-go, her arms are folded and she's rude and she is not wanting him to date women. Yeah, the whole thing is very, very uncomfortable to me. I do not get this little incestuous relationship. It's definitely there. It is a love triangle between a woman, her brother, and his girlfriend. I take it as this. This actress, she's psychic, right? So she probably knows that the girlfriend's going to go and star in two David Lynch movies, Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire, and she's going to go on to do something called Bloodsuckers and never work again. I think that's actually the core of her resentment here. <laughs> and, of course, Jerry's doing no favors by making small talk like, how long you been handicapped? And talking about the odds of dying in a plane crash when that's how her parents died. Yeah, you think she would have known that somehow. You're dating a boy whose parents died in a plane crash, so, well, it's still the safest way to fly. There's a good platitude for you. Yeah, we know she's dead meat. I mean, why else would she come along to Grandma's house? Now, I had to do some map quest here. Peru, California. This is obviously shot in the L.A., Southern California area. They're talking directions, how to get there. It takes them hours from wherever they are, it starts out at 4 o'clock in daylight, it's midnight, and they do not get to Grandma's house for hours. If you went from San Diego to the place that they're going, you could do it in two hours. Are there two Perus? Because they kind of hint at that in the movie, don't they? When the cop shows up, they're like, well, the Grandma's in Peru. Well, do I go north or do I go east? Yeah, there's this whole joke about how to navigate the freeways. It's not that there's two different ones. There's all of these in-jokes about how best to get there, but I don't understand because you end up using the same roads. I know enough about L.A. now to know that this makes absolutely no sense. But it's a going to Grandma's house story. And somehow they get beat there by Ricky, who has magically come back to life. Who's walking. All right. So the magic is, of course, not the silk hat, but the psychic bond. But he wakes up and starts killing people in the hospital. This gives me hope. I just want to say immediately this gives me hope. We're... Over 20 minutes into the movie, but the massacre has begun, right? Ricky's gonna go out and start killing people. I'm hoping for garbage day. No, instead you get Ricky standing there in his hospital gown, ass almost exposed, looking at the freeway signs, trying to figure out which way to go. <laughs> I knew we were in trouble right from the get-go because I thought what resurrected him was not his dream therapy with Laura, but the fact that there's a Santa going around the hospital ward, drinking, making innuendo about candy canes, begging to be killed. I thought that it was his red suit that sort of sprang Ricky back to life and back to his old habits here. And I knew we were in trouble when Ricky kills the Santa and then leaves in the hospital gown. He does not ever put on the Santa suit. That is so disappointing. I'm looking 
look into you parts four and five to rectify this because the DVD that I paid $80 for because it's out of print. <laughs> Thank you, donors. Thank you. It has a Santa holding an axe on the cover and it has all three movies, parts three, four, and five in there. And I'm looking, I thought for sure if Ricky's back that we'd get our Santa killer again. And no, he does not put on the Santa suit like Big Brother Billy. He keeps the hospital gown and the fishbowl. It's an interesting look, but it still gets him picked up while hitchhiking by a trucker. Yeah, it's a ripoff. He doesn't use his signature line either. No punish. How could they not say punish? Or naughty. Yeah. All he says is, Laura. (laughs) And can I just say that's an instant waste of Bill Mosley's talents. He was truthfully one of the high points of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 for me with his wonderful, maniacal delivery. My brother Bubba and me, we listen to you all the time. And in House of a Thousand Corpses. He's really good as Otis. And the year after this, he would go on to completely own the role of Johnny in the Night of the Living Dead remake, where I thought it was the original actor driving gloves and all and so to put him in this lackluster role i mean you say he's a horror icon he's definitely somebody on the d-list but this man can act and to put him in this it's just disappointing i was truthfully expecting a fun time with bill mosley in it and they just have neutered him yeah i think this is absolutely the wrong way to go even if you don't get eric freeman again for those hilarious line deliveries you have a performance that is big there's so many people walking around in a trance. There's so much about this movie that feels muted. You need an oversized personality to be the killer. But yeah, to have him be one word stumbling around, essentially a village idiot with a very small scalpel. He doesn't have a great tool. He's not wearing the Santa suit. They have failed to set up Santa suit killer the way that he needs to be. It's really baffling. And I don't think they take any joy in who he's taking out here. I mean, he does end up taking out the desk nurse exactly how Laura prophesied in her vision. Not sure how she knew about that since she's blind, but... She sees through the eyes of others and she can see the future. So that's how she knew, is she could see what was coming. Well, whose eyes did she see when she saw that woman dead? I think she saw through his eyes. Oh, okay. So she can see what he's going to see in the future? She's like a puppet. Look, you're not supposed to think this hard about it. Truthfully, you're probably not. Yeah, I really don't think that they expected us to dissect it like it. Well, that's why we're here, though. I mean... (laughs) I'm just saying, I don't think there's any rhyme or reason to it. I think it's just what they felt like in their 90 days or whatever. Yeah, one week to write the script. Whatever the answer is, they didn't spend too much time thinking about it. Really, I think it was, we've set up the lights. Let's shoot at least five minutes in this scene because we only have so many setups. So we're going to kill the gas station attendant. Let's spend a full minute at his desk watching the old movie on his table and looking at the phone off the hook. All right, come on, that's kind of fun. Funny, though. This is where some of the humor sort of gets to me. I mean, a woman calls his girlfriend or whoever she has calls to talk dirty to him, and he's like, well, I gotta fill up a customer, and gets up and goes, and then goes back for the Santa hat. It's that red Santa hat that's gonna get him killed, and of course, the punchline is that his severed head is put next to the phone, and she's talking dirty to him. I kinda laughed. I suppose I wasn't laughing because we're a half an hour into this movie, and this is a dour, dour, boring experience. There's no fun here. That should have been played for more laughs, but it just goes on too long. All of comedy is timing, and this timing is all off. You're exactly right. This would be a whole lot funnier, even with the jokes written, if the pacing were better. He's going to meet somebody that's a trucker or something like that, and thinks that his glass dome head is a hair transplant gone wrong. I mean, there's stuff here they could have done. I recognize that they're not trying to make these slasher kills like they did in the first movie as some kind of cathartic, quote-unquote, scary kill. These are punchline. They are going for Freddy comedy kind of kills here, but it doesn't have Freddy timing, and it fails largely because of that. I think the worst, though, when I realized this movie was unsalvageable, is when we go to Granny's house, and again, we have a setup, we have the lights on, let's spend five minutes watching her baste the turkey (laughs) and walk around the kitchen. I could watch this in my own kitchen with Grandma going around in the fridge making a sticky mess i don't need to be watching it on tv also okay wait i have a question in grandma's house why did she have a framed picture of martin luther king (laughs) Uh, she was a hip lady although arguably not in terms of fashion i mean she's wearing a colonial little house in the prairie dress here it's a very stereotypical grandmother role it confused me i honestly thought she was black (laughs) 
<laughs> Wait, what? He did win this big what? discussion on what color Granny was because she had a framed picture of Martin Luther King. And she's in shadow. <laughs> and it's like that Seinfeld episode. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out maybe she's really light-skinned. <laughs> White people liked Martin Luther King. I, you're hilarious. You thought she was black. Well, well, your mind does wander. I give you that. When you watch this movie, you think about all sorts of things, waiting for something to happen. Of course, the son stops at the gas station and calls, says, I'll be there in an hour. I'm like, an hour? Oh, my God. <laughs> But that's the tell that tells you that she's psychic, too. She goes, the phone's going to ring, and then it does. So we know that Granny shares the same power as Laura. And this matters why? This helps her how? It doesn't help either one. (laughs) Because she's going to come back to Laura at a pivotal moment at the end. But we'll get there when we get there. Oh, that's why she comes back at the end. I just thought because Laura was psychic that people could come back. Here's the problem. is Stuart, you pegged it right. Is your mind wandered during this movie, and I found myself having to force myself to pay attention. Oh, yes. I mean, seriously, if this were on VHS, I would be hitting the fast-forward button, and I don't think I would have missed anything. You could watch this movie in triple time and miss nothing. It is almost like a real-time movie. The two hours it takes them to drive to Granny's house is about what it feels like to watch them do it. But Ricky shows up at Granny's house, and... They're playing that scene out of Frankenstein with the blind man and Frankenstein. I mean, Ricky's sitting at the table and Granny's like offering him food and I'm just waiting for Granny to get it. I will spend most of the rest of the movie wondering if Granny lived or died because we don't find out until the end. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Where's Granny? I really thought Granny was going to come back and kill him at the end. No, no. You knew Granny was dead instantly because she gives him a gift. And it's wrapped in what? Red paper. That's what lets you know that he was going to snap. Up to that point, they were having a psychic discussion. She was talking to him, even though he wasn't saying any words, feeding him dinner and treating him like a guest. And then she makes the step of trying to give him this red wrapped gift. And that's how you know when the kids get there that they're going to find a corpse. I had completely forgotten. Red car. Good point. I was not putting the red together. Well, because it didn't happen up until this point, other than Santa. No, because the desk nurse had a poinsettia on her that was red as well. Everyone that gets something, it's not because what they do to Ricky. You would be completely fine. You could slap him in the face and give him a wedgie. If you're wearing all black, he won't do anything to you. But give him a kiss and give him a Christmas present. And if it's in a crimson color, he'll cut your throat. I did not catch that on this one. I guess I needed the actor to point it out and say, Red present! Good point! I certainly would have enjoyed that more. But eventually the kids do get to Grandma's. They didn't even stop to get the butter. I'm like, you took hours, you did not even get the butter. (laughs) They're late. They're laughing that maybe the boogeyman got her. And Jerry decides, I'm gonna go take a bath. (laughs) And I'm wondering, where's Ricky? When we last saw Ricky, he was in the house. And we then spend another half hour of this movie without any attacks. We spent that next half hour with them in the house. We do get a sex scene, which I never really needed to see Eric Dura in, but I do. And with Jerry and the blind girl fumbling around. Is that sex? They get in a tub. I don't think they have sex. Well, they got in the tub. They're both naked. And when we cut away, they're kissing. I can tell you, if you're naked in a bathtub with a woman kissing, that doesn't end by a handshake. Who does that at grandma's house? Who does that when you're late for dinner? (laughs) You should be go getting the butter. You should not be going to have sex in a bathtub of your grandmother's. On Christmas Eve. I mean, this is all kinds of crazy. You're right. That is the moment where I'm like, oh my God, they are literally doing whatever it takes to try and stall for something to happen. Because I think, oh, character getting naked, getting in a bathtub, that's an obvious time to get killed. No, these people do this and then go have a stroll outside and talk to the sister. I mean, they do all kinds of things. Getting naked and having sex does not get them killed here. It's just a way of keeping our interest peaked, theoretically, until they want to get to the end of the movie. And I can tell this movie is getting a not recommend when there's a really hot woman in a nude sex scene and I'm still bored. (laughs) And Laura's left to watch TV, which I ask, why is she watching TV? She's blind. But she can listen. 
she can listen to a violent movie in which a birds are plucking out a man's eyes? I mean, it's Christmas Eve and no one's watching It's a Wonderful Life or Rudolph. It's all these horror movies that are on TV. I don't get it. I do not get what's going on in this house. Well, that's kind of like our house. We were watching Christmas movies at Halloween and horror movies at Christmas. We're doing Silent Night, Deadly Night and not It's a Wonderful Life. So I guess it tells you there is an audience for that kind of thing. But strange chick. I don't get Laura. I never buy She's Blind. I forget She's blind until the movie tells me she is moving her head to look at things she's not cocking her head to listen to things and maybe it's her psychic bond but maybe she knows the house so well that she can react to things but there's still one shining hope for this movie all of this is going terribly bad but i noticed in the opening credits that one of my greatest american heroes was in this film robert culp I am a huge fan of his from the 80s, from Greatest American Hero, and that's about it. (laughs) He did do I Spy with Bill Cosby in the 60s as well, and he had had a long TV career even before that. I've seen him in a lot of stuff, but he'll always be Ralph's cop friend to me. And knowing he was in this movie, I saw the Twin Peaks cast, I saw Robert Culp, and I saw Bill Mosley. I had such high hopes going in, but Robert Culp was my last shining star. He could save this movie. You're very faithful. Yeah, I agree. There's no way he could save this movie, but I will say this. He's the most fun actor to watch on screen whenever he's on it. He's doing a totally different thing. It's an entirely different movie when Robert Culp is kind of wandering through things, but we like him because he's the one shooting holes in the Doctor's plot and in this movie. I mean, he's just mocking everything that we see. He's like, what, you hooked a psychic blind girl up with a Santa Claus killer and it went badly? How big of an idiot are these people? I do like him, but it is like he is giving the performance I've always seen him give, playing a cop, which is what I've always seen him play. Yeah, I mean, this is as comfortable as an old robe for him. Yeah. But he's making me laugh here. What's Deja Vu twice? Stupid. And I'm like, yeah, just like Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. But they just spend a lot of time. It's Robert Culp and Dr. Newberry driving in the car, talking about the best way to get to Grandma's house. Right, yeah. Keep in mind, they don't even know where they're going. They're just aimlessly wandering around, and this doctor has decided to go along with the cop investigating. There's no reason to. Talking about the merits of cell phones, stopping for pee breaks. These guys are hilarious to me. There's no sense of urgency about saving these people in peril. (laughs) There's no sense of urgency anywhere in this movie. No, agreed. I mean, eventually we find out that the red truck got overturned and the phone has been cut and Ricky has kept popping up in windows and Laura's picture is gone. I mean, they keep building and building and building. Well, finally, finally, how many, how many minutes are left? 15? I think at some point when Culp gets to the gas station and says they're 10 minutes away, there's like 13 minutes of movie left. They're literally like, okay, the movie can finally commence at the very climax. Yeah, you are right. At the time when Dr. Newberry gets killed, there's 18 minutes left counting credits. Wow. I was writing down the times in this movie because there was nothing else for me to write down about this movie. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm sitting here equally happy that there's only 15 minutes of my life that's going to be wasted on this movie, but also hoping for an action-packed climax. (laughs) But... Can I say, this movie did one thing right. I'm going to fight to give it a compliment. I was in suspense at the end of this movie because I never could figure out what Ricky wanted with Laura. They have a psychic bond, but this could go two different ways in movies. He could want to kill her or he could want to fuck her. And given the history of rape in this series, I'm not sure where it's going. Yeah, we never knew. I assume kill because neither Billy nor Ricky made sexual assault a part of their slasher dumb. I didn't think necessarily that he was going to do that, but this is a different Ricky this time. I don't know what he wants. Laura seems to want to. You know, when he finally shows up, he's like, he can't be stopped. He wants me. There's nothing you can do. And, you know, she seems to know all about it because she's replayed the first two movies again and again in her head for our entertainment. But... And for the elongation of the film that they had no time to make. Yeah, but the fact that she psychically touched him seems to have no purpose, even in this climax. She didn't see it coming. Granny didn't see it coming. For all of their powers of premonition, they still died like stupid idiots here. And this movie does take an unexpected turn, though. Because they kill Chris, the brother. 
and it's left to be Jerry with Laura. And these two have been nothing but catty to each other the whole time. But now that there's a killer, they are literally hugging like best girlfriends and they are complete partners now. I mean, admittedly, yes, there's no atheist in a foxhole and all that. Oh, Laura set her up. She set Jerry up to die. Look, Laura has been someone, as soon as she walked in, she's like, this chair has been moved two feet. She knows every inch of this house. She's like, my picture's missing. She knows everything. They're looking for a pistol, and she lets that girl go wander off to find it. She knows where that pistol is. She wants that girl out of her life. She let her go get killed. I mean, it could have been more obvious of like, I forgive you. Now go. I'll be right back. I mean, we all know what I'll be right back means. Well, we were watching Scream together, but I just think that that would have been more interesting in this movie if the psychic link was bi-directional and now Laura had some homicidal impulses. Yeah, let's kill the bitch, but that's not how it's played. No, definitely not how it's played. It's a typical spiral staircase. There's lots of movies about blind women being terrorized, and really, it's not that she's psychic, it's that she's blind that they're playing with with the climax, that she's running around, she's leaving blind bloody handprints. The killer is able to keep up with her. It all leads down to a basement where she breaks the bulb so that they're equal and he's blinded as she is. It's really just a blind thriller. But he has lights in his fishbowl. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I will admit, though, I had to watch this ending twice because I missed the climax of the movie. It is a blink and you miss it kind of climax. Because they break the light, and they're down there, and oops, Chris is really alive! And now he's dead again. I don't understand his line. Please explain this joke to me. Hey, Bubblehead, is it live or Memorex? I don't get that either. Arnie, you're the resident 80s expert. I know that was the Memorex tagline in the 80s that their cassette sounded so great you won't be able to tell. And maybe it's because he came back from the dead. Maybe the question is, is he a psychic vision or a real person? But no, I was just smiling thinking about an old Memorex ad, not because of this movie. Yeah, I don't get it. And again, I keep waiting for her psychic powers to kick in here. Grandma appears in a vision and is like, embrace it. Help others. I think, well, this is what she's going to do. She's going to help out her brother. No, he gets choked. And then Ricky's coming for her and he trips and she's just holding a stick that just happens to impale him. This is what I had to rewind. I'm like, that cannot be how this movie ends. There has to be a fight. There has to be a chase. You cannot have Ricky, having walked hundreds of miles (laughs) to get to Granny's house, (laughs) fall over on a stick. Well, his muscles are kind of atrophied from being in that coma for so long. He's just not very dexterous or (laughs) sure on his feet. Oh, no, I understand why you'd fall over. I just can't believe that this is how she gets away, that she doesn't even get to put up a fight here, that it literally is just fall on your sword the end. We don't even know that he's dead. Quite honestly, when the paramedics show up, they haul somebody away and say, we think we can save him. But I don't know if it's Ricky or Chris. I got the impression it was Chris, because doesn't Laura go over and talk to him? Uh, Did she? I think she did. I'm not going to go back and look at it to see, find out. No, I'm not either, but... <laughs> it could be Ricky on the van. It was pretty ambiguous to me, but I was more tuned into the fact that Culp finally shows up and decides to mock Newberry's dying breath. Give me a call sometime, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's cold. That is cold. What did this guy do? Well, his psychic experimentation did raise a killer from the dead and keep Robert Culp working. That's true. Good point. He should have been doing an iSpy reunion. If only Bill Cosby would return his phone calls. And then it ends on a real perplexing moment. Merry Christmas. And a Happy New Year. See? Ricky does have more lines than Laura. For some reason, he appears in a vision. Is he a ghost? I don't know. He's wearing a tuxedo. What the fuck was that? I don't know. Yeah, he's in a suit. Is it his Christmas best? You know, obviously they're saying that their minds are still melded, but where he is physically, what this could mean, that's why I take it to mean that I think it's Ricky on that gurney. I think that he's the one that's going to survive hell. He may be back next week, guys. It could be Ricky on the van, but he's in a suit, so I think he's dead. I mean, don't they always give you good clothes when you go to heaven? I don't know why he'd get to go to heaven. Maybe they give you a nice tailored suit when you go to hell, but it makes no sense. My only explanation is no fun. It's they ran out of money they ran out of time they didn't have the coverage they needed to film the death scene which is why we just see him basically bend over onto the stick and then we see a close-up of a stick going through him and this end like you said Stuart, there's supposed to be humor here because of just the agonizing pacing nothing's funny but i think that's supposed to be the button that's supposed to be ricky's version of that's all folks 
Oh, I thought it might be a setup. I thought that maybe the next sequel is going to be him in a baby New Year diaper running around killing folks. Oh, dear God, please no. I'd be up for that because maybe it would be funnier. Well, I'm in suspense. Let's unwrap this gift. Marjorie Stewart, do you recommend Silent Night, Deadly Night 3? Better watch out! Marjorie. Oh, hell no. Not even Bill Mosley could make this a horror movie worth watching because he's wasted. This movie is boring, and it's about 90 minutes too long. (laughs) It's only 87 minutes. Exactly. (laughs) It's just so dull. I wish I had this time back in my life because I'm just forever going to lose this time. It was just, it's so boring. It doesn't really fit in. They gotta quit replacing Ricky every time. No, I do not recommend this. Stuart. But Marjorie, think about all the trees they saved by not writing a long script. I think it's very economical. It's very in the spirit of the times. <laughs> all right. No, I, this movie is very naughty. And it's really been a debate about do I give it two lumps of coal or three lumps of coal? I'm going to say two lumps of coal because I did smile at a couple of the jokes because I do have some love for Twin Peaks and it's fun to see some of these people who I've never seen outside of that world here in this horrible, horrible film. But there's no doubt about it. It's tedious. It's largely terrible. The kills are not funny the way that they were in part two. It's a mess. So I'm hopeful that they can walk away from this thing, give us something better next week, because this is a two lump of coal, very unsatisfying Christmas for me. You're saying two lumps of coal or three lumps of coal. I'm thinking back up the truck and dump the coal (laughs) on this film so that it is buried. Put it in the coal mine. You know, to quote this movie, I don't want to see the future of the past just so long as I never have to watch this again. This movie was truthfully agonizing. It made the first movie look downright fleet. I never thought I'd hearken the days for Billy, and I never thought that I would just find a Bill Mosley film so unenjoyable. All I could do for 87 minutes is wish I was watching Twin Peaks instead. Even the second season with Wyndham Earl. That would have been so much better than this, because at least I would have had David Duchovny in drag. Here, I have... Nothing to hold on to. There's not a single likable character. The only performance is Robert Culp phoning it in anyway, but he's just such a pro, he can do that and still be better than anyone else around him. Yep. It's a strong not recommend. And my Christmas wish is that parts four, five, and the remake are better than this, because I don't know that I can keep doing this. I feel as bad as you must have during, like, the TV movies of Marvel at this point. No, no, this is worse. This is worse than even those things. I mean, yeah, joyless. This is the kind of Christmas where you're crying. You know, I had a few ones where I didn't get what I wanted and it ended up being sort of a tragic morning. And this is bringing me back to, you know, my mother screaming of where are the receipts and you ungrateful brat. These kinds of Christmases are what this movie is reminding me of. Well, we have another one next week and I don't know anything about it, but... Ricky could come back. I don't know. I always thought that this series was just connected by the holiday. I did not know that there was a Ricky. I didn't know that there was a glue to this. Now that we've gone three in, I don't know how they can do one without him. I think it's got to have Ricky. That's my prediction, but it's completely ignorant. I have no idea what we're in for, but I know that I'll hold my nose and get through it. So until next week, you better not pout. You better not cry. You better not shout. I'm telling you why. Now playing. We'll be back next week. You're safe now. Santa Claus is God. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Cheer up. Tomorrow's Christmas Eve. And things are only going to get better. If you enjoyed this podcast, head to our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, to hear the other reviews in the Silent Night, Deadly Night series. Let me tell you about Christmas. It ain't all candy canes and pretty lights. As well as other horror movie reviews, such as the Halloween movies, Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street, House of a Thousand Corpses, and more. You tend to get paranoid when everyone around you gets dead. We also have non-horror movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Terminator, The Avengers, Rambo, Rocky, and more. That sounds like an enterprise of 
great pith. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Is it live or is it Memorex? While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. You will talk. I will listen. But then you know that. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. So are you going to go? The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. You have to come up sometime, and when you do, I'll be waiting for you. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. <laughs> Give a dollar for the kiddies. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Put the money in the bag. Now Playing's Silent Night, Deadly Night is edited by Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jeff, and Arnie. What, are you a masochist or something? Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. I'm finished talking, Henry. The Silent Night, Deadly Night films are the property of their individual studios and stakeholders, and no infringement is intended. Too many people get away with shit like that. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. There is no logical explanation. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. It's over! Time to get shit-faced! <laughs>and maybe it's because the stewardess gives great head without hands and Laura needs her hands just to find where the dick is. Blind oral sex joke not working, huh? No. All right, cut it. Cut that. Well, I was confused because she actually does do a, a sex joke. That's right. I thought that's what you were referring to, and then I realized. No, no, I was referring to where uh, when they meet, Chris tells me you gave good head and you do it without hands, too. Naughty. I know, I mean, this movie couldn't have been worse if we had Bill Cosby here. We have to find Ricky! <laughs>